Section 35 of the Underground Railroad, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 4, by William Still. Section 35. THE CASE OF EUPHEMIA WILLIAMS, PART Four. Mr. McMurtry replied by reasserting his positions. It was a grave question for the court to consider what evidence was required. He thought that this decision might be the turning case to show whether the act of Congress would be carried out, or whether we were to return, in fact, to the state of affairs under the old laws. Judge Kane said, in reference to the remarks at the close of Mr. McMurtry's speech, So long as I retain my seat on this bench, I shall endeavor to enforce this law, without reference to my own sympathies, or the sympathies and opinions of others. I do not think, in the cases under this Act of Congress, or a treaty, or constitutional, or legal provision for the extradition of fugitives from justice, that it is possible to imagine that conclusive proof of identity could be established by depositions from the nature of the case and the facts to be proved proof cannot be made in anticipation of the identity of the party that being established it is the office of the judge to determine whether a prima facie case indicates the identity of the party charged with the party before him on the other hand, the evidence of the claimant has been met, and regarding the bearing of the witnesses for the respondent, met by witnesses who testified with apparent candor and great intelligence. If they are to be believed, then the witnesses for the claimant are mistaken. The question is, whether two witnesses for the claimant who have not seen the respondent for twenty-three, one for twenty-four years, are to be believed, in preference to four witnesses on the other side, three of whom have seen her frequently since 1826, and known her as Euphemia Williams, and the fourth, who has not seen her for a quarter of a century, but testifies that when they were children they used to jest each other, about scars which they still bear upon their persons i am bound to say that the proof by the four witnesses has not been overthrown by the contrary evidence of the two who only recognized her when they called on her with the marshal one says he called her mahala purnell as soon as he saw her he might be mistaken he inferred he would find her at the place to which he went there were three persons in the room one was mahala richardson whom he knew a young girl and the prisoner if she had been alone his recognition would have been of no avail the fact is obvious to this court that the respondent has no peculiar physiognomy or gait it has been shown she has no peculiarity of voice i cannot but feel that the fact alleged by the claimant is very doubtful when the witnesses without mark or peculiarity testify that they can readily recognize the girl of fifteen in the woman of forty the prisoner 
is therefore discharged. A slight attempt at applause in the courtroom was promptly suppressed. The intelligence of the discharge of the woman was quickly spread to those without, who raised shouts of joy. The woman with her children were hurried into a carriage, which was driven first to the anti-slavery office, and then to the Philadelphia Institute, in Lombard Street above 7th. Here she was introduced to a large audience of colored people, who hailed her appearance with lively joy. Several excited speeches were made, and great enthusiasm was manifested in and outside of the building and the adjacent streets. When Euphemia came out, the horses were taken out of the carriage, and a long rope was attached, which was taken by as many colored people as could get hold of it, and the woman and her children thus conveyed to her home. The procession was accompanied by several hundreds of men, women, and boys. They dragged the carriage past the residence of the counsel for the respondent, cheering them by huzzas of the wildest kind, and then took the vehicle and its contents to the residence of the woman, Germantown Road, near Fifth Street, beguiling the way with songs and shouts. The whole scene was one of wild, ungovernable excitement, produced by exuberance of joy. The masterly management of abolitionists in connection with the council saved poor Euphemia from being dragged from her children into hopeless bondage. While the victory was a source of great momentary rejoicing on the part of the friends of the slave, it was nevertheless quite manifest that she was only released by the skin of her teeth. A scar on her forehead saved her. Relative to this important mark, a few of Euphemia's friends enjoyed a very pleasing anecdote, which at the time they were obliged to withhold from the public. It is too good to be kept any longer. For a time Euphemia was kept in durance vile up in the dome of Independence Hall, partly in the custody of Lieutenant Gouldy of the Mayor's Police, who was the right man in the right place, whose sympathies were secretly on the side of the slave while his pitying eyes gazed on euphemia's sad face he observed a very large scar on her forehead and was immediately struck with the idea that that old scar might be used with damaging effect by the witnesses and counsel against her at once he decided that the scar must be concealed at least until after the examination of the claimant's witnesses accordingly a large turban was procured and placed on Euphemia's head, in such a manner as to hide the scar completely, without exciting the least suspicion in the minds of any. So, when the witnesses against her swore that she had no particular mark, David Paul Brown made them clinch this part of their testimony, irrevocably. Now when Sarah Gailey affirmed, on the part of the prisoner, that I have reason to know her because she has the same sort of a scar on her forehead that I have, we used to make fun of each other about the marks, etc. If it was not evident to all, it was to some that she had stolen their thunder, as the chop-fallen countenances of the slaveholders' witnesses indicated in a moment. Despair was depicted on all faces sympathizing with the pursuers. With heavy pecuniary losses, sad damage of character, and comfortless, the unhappy claimant and his witnesses were compelled to return to Maryland, wiser if not better men. The account of this interesting trial 
we have condensed from a very careful and elaborate report of it published in the pennsylvania freeman january thirteenth eighteen fifty seven apparently the vigilance of slave hunters was not slackened by this defeat as the records show that many exciting cases took place in philadelphia and pennsylvania and if the records of the old abolitionist society could be published as they should be it would appear that many hard-fought battles have taken place between freedom and slavery on this soil here in conclusion touching the fugitive slave law arrests under it etc as a fitting sequel we copy two extracts from high authority the first is from the able and graphic pen of james miller mckim who was well known to stand in the front ranks of both the anti-slavery society and the underground railroad cause through all the long and trying contest during which the country was agitated by the question of immediate emancipation and shared the full confidence and respect of abolitionists of all classes throughout the united states and great britain the letter from which we have made this extract was written to the hon george thompson the distinguished abolitionist of england and speaks for itself the other quotation is from the pen of a highly respectable and intelligent lady belonging to the society of friends or quakers and a most devoted friend of the slave whose statement obviously is literally true from mr mckim to george thompson 1851 the accompanying parcel of extracts will give you a full account of the different slave cases tried in this city under the new fugitive slave law up to this time full and accurate as these reports are they will afford you but a faint idea of the anguish and confusion that have been produced in this part of the country by this infamous statute it has turned southeastern pennsylvania into another guinea coast and caused a large portion of the inhabitants to feel as insecure from the brutal violence and diabolical acts of the kidnapper as are the unhappy creatures who people the shores of africa ruffians from the other side of the slave line aided by professional kidnappers on our own soil a class of men whose occupation until lately had been gone are continually prowling through the community and every now and then seizing and carrying away their prey as a specimen of the boldness though fortunately not of the success always with which these wretches prosecute their nefarious trade read the enclosed article which i cut from the freeman of january second and bear in mind that in no respect are the facts here mentioned overstated this affair occurred in chester county one of the most orderly and intelligent counties in the state a county settled principally by quakers a week or two after this occurrence and not far from the same place a farmhouse was entered by a band of armed ruffians in the evening and at a time when all the able-bodied occupants save one were known to be absent this was a colored man who was seated by the kitchen fire and in the act of taking off his shoes he was instantly knocked down and gagged but still resisting he was beaten most unmercifully there was a woman and also a feeble old man in the house who were attracted to the spot by the scuffle but they could neither render any assistance 
nor, the light being put out, could they recognize the parties engaged in it. The unhappy victim, being fairly overcome, was dragged like a slain beast to a wagon, which was about a hundred yards distant, waiting to receive him. In this he was placed, and conveyed across the line, which was about twenty miles further south, and that was the last, so far as I know, that has ever been heard of him. The alarm was given, of course, as soon as possible, and the neighbors were quickly in pursuit, but the kidnappers had got the start of them. The next morning the trail between the house and the place where the wagon stood was distinctly visible and deeply marked with blood. About a fortnight since a letter was brought to our office from a well-known friend, the contents of which were in substance as follows. A case of kidnapping had occurred in the vicinity of West Cane Township, Chester County, at about half-past one on Sunday morning, the 16th March. A black man by the name of Thomas Hall, an honest, sober, and industrious individual, living in the midst of a settlement of farmers, had been stolen by persons who knocked at his door, and told him that his nearest neighbor wanted him to come to his house, one of his children being sick. Hall, not immediately opening his door, it was burst in, and three men rushed into his house. Hall was felled by the bludgeons of the men. His wife received several severe blows, and on making for the door was told that if she attempted to go out or halloo, she would have her brains blown out. She, however, escaped through a back window, and gave the alarm. But before any person arrived upon the ground, they had fled with their victim. He was taken without any clothing except his night-clothes. A six-barreled revolver, heavily loaded, was dropped in the scuffle and left. Also a silk handkerchief, and some old advertisement of a bear-bait that was to take place in Emmitsburg, Maryland. In how many cases the persons stolen are legally liable to capture, it is impossible to state. The law, you know, authorizes arrests to be made with or without process, and nothing is easier under such circumstances than to kidnap persons who are free-born. The very same day that I received the above-mentioned letter, and while our hearts were still aching over its contents, another was brought us from Thomas Garrett of Wilmington, Delaware, announcing the abduction, a night or two before, of a free-colored man of that city. The outrage was committed by an ex-policeman, who, pretending to be acting under the commission which he had been known to hold, entered, near the hour of midnight, the house of the victim, and alleging against him some petty act of disorder, seized him, handcuffed him in the presence of his dismayed family, and carried him off to Maryland. The cheat that had been practiced was not discovered by the family until the next evening, but it was too late. The man was gone. At the time Mr. Garrett's letter was handed to me, narrating the foregoing case of man-stealing, I was listening to the sad tales of two colored women who had come to the office for advice and assistance. One of them was an elderly person whose son had been pursued by the marshal's deputies, and who had just escaped with the skin of his teeth. She did not come on her own account, however. Her heart was too full of joy for that. She came to accompany the young woman who was with her. This young woman is a remarkably intelligent, ladylike person, 
and her story made a strong appeal to my feelings. She is a resident of Washington, and her errand here was to procure the liberation of a sister-in-law, who is confined in that city under very peculiar circumstances. The sister-in-law had absconded from her mistress about nine months since, and was secreted in the room of an acquaintance, who was cook in a distinguished slaveholding family in Washington, her intention being there to wait until all search should be over, and an opportunity offer of escape to the north. But as yet no such opportunity had presented itself, at least none that was available, and for nine long months had that poor girl been confined in the narrow limits of the cook's chamber, watched over day and night by that faithful friend, with a vigilance as sleepless as it was disinterested. The time had now come, however, when something must be done. The family in whose house she hid is about to be broken up, and the house to be vacated, and the girl must either be rescued from her peril, or she and all her accomplices must be exposed. What to do under these circumstances was the question which brought this woman to Philadelphia. I advised her to the best of my ability, and sent her away hopeful, if not rejoicing. But in many of these cases we can render no aid whatever. All we can do is to commend them to the God of the oppressed, and labor on for the day of general deliverance. But, oh, the horrors of this hell-born system, and the havoc made by this, its last foul offspring, the fugitive slave law, the anguish, the terror, the agony inflicted by this infamous statute, must be witnessed to be fully appreciated. You must hear the tale of the broken-hearted mother who has just received tidings that her son is in the hands of man-thieves. You must listen to the impassioned appeal of the wife whose husband's retreat has been discovered, and whose footsteps are dogged by the bloodhounds of slavery. You must hear the husband, as I did a few weeks ago, himself bound and helpless, beg you for God's sake to save his wife. You must see such a woman as Hannah Dellum, with her noble-looking boy at her side, pleading in vain before a pro-slavery judge that she is of right free, that her son is entitled to his freedom, and above all that her babe about to be born should be permitted to open its eyes upon the light of liberty. You must hear the judge's decision, remorselessly giving up the woman with her children, born and unborn, into the hands of the claimants, by them to be carried to the slave prison, and thence to be sold to a returnless distance from the remaining but scattered fragments of her once happy family. These things you must see and hear for yourself before you can form any adequate idea of the bitterness of this cup which the unhappy children of oppression along this southern border are called upon to drink. Manifestations like these have we been obliged either to witness ourselves or to hear the recital of from others almost daily for weeks together. Our aching hearts of late have known but little respite. A shadow has been cast over our home circles, and a check been given to the wonted cheerfulness of our families. One night, the night that the woman and the boy and the unborn babe received their doom, my wife, long after midnight, literally wept herself to sleep. For the last fortnight we have had no new cases, but even now, when I go home in the evening, if I happen to look more serious than usual, 
my wife notices it and asks is there another slave case and my little girls look up anxiously for my reply from miss mary b thomas daring outrage burglary and kidnapping the following letter tells its own startling and most painful story every manly and generous heart must burn with indignation at the villainy it describes and bleed with sympathy for the almost broken-hearted sufferers downington nineteenth fourth month eighteen forty eight my dear friend this morning our family was aroused by the screams of a young colored girl who has been living with us nearly a year past but we were awakened only in time to see her borne off by three white men ruffians indeed to a carriage at our door and in an instant she was on her way to the south i feel so much excited by the attendant circumstances of this daring and atrocious deed as scarcely to be able to give you a coherent account of it but i know that it is a duty to make it known and i therefore write this immediately as soon as the house was opened in the morning these men who were lurking without having a carriage in waiting in the street entered on their horrid errand they encountered no one in their entrance except a colored boy who was making the fire and who being frightened at their approach ran and hid himself taking a lighted candle from the kitchen and carrying it upstairs they went directly to the chamber in which the poor girl lay in a sound sleep they lifted her from the bed and carried her downstairs in the entry of the second floor they met one of my sisters who hearing an unusual noise had sprung from her bed her screams and those of the poor girl who was now thoroughly awakened to the dreadful truth aroused my father who hurried undressed from his chamber on the ground floor my father's efforts were powerless against the three they threw him off and with frightful imprecations hurried the girl to the carriage quickly as possible my father started in pursuit and reached westchester only to learn that the carriage had driven through the borough at full speed about half an hour before they had two horses to their vehicle and there were three men besides those in the house these particulars we gather from the colored boy ned who from his hiding-place was watching them in the road can anything be done for the rescue of this girl from the kidnappers we are surprised and alarmed this deliberate invasion of our house is a thing unimagined there must be some informer who is acquainted with our house and its arrangements or they never would have come so boldly through truly there is no need to preach about slavery in the abstract this individual case combines every wickedness by which human nature can be degraded truly thy friend mary b thomas in a subsequent letter our friend says as to detail the whole transaction was like a flash to those who saw the miserable ending i was impelled to write without delay by the thought that it would be in time for the freemen and that any procrastination on my part might jeopard others of these suffering people who are living as was this poor girl in fancied security our consternation was inexpressible our sorrow and indignation deepen daily as the thought returns of the awful announcement with which we were awakened they have carried martha to the south to do what will be of most service to the cause not their cause ours 
that of our race is our burning desire. End of section 35